Plundergrounds, Episode 125, A Veritable Grab Bag. Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Hi everybody, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're staying healthy and everyone around you is staying healthy. I hope you're dealing well with your anxieties and making sure that you're not spreading those anxieties unnecessarily to others by echoing random bad news or being short with others in lines as you buy toilet paper. This is a weird time, is it not? And this may be a weird podcast because I have some random thoughts that I'm going to put out there in short form, mostly because I need to get back on the mic and, and uh, keep my discipline up for podcasting, not just to inflict dumb things on your ears, of course, but uh, I, you know, there's so many ideas to talk about, and sometimes I feel like I have to develop them into full thoughts, and today I was thinking, you know, I don't really have to do that. Sometimes you can just make a few statements and get people thinking, and that's the value of them right there. You don't really have to resolve it. So here are some of the random thoughts that I've had in the last couple of days. First of all, I've been listening to a number of podcasts, specifically the one I listened to just a few hours ago was Loco Ludus, and it was it was a bathtub podcast, which seems to be a thing now among the Anchorite podcasters to podcast from your bathtub. Uh, I will not be doing that, but I appreciate the sort of punk rock mentality of, uh, you know, podcasting from anywhere. So that's kind of cool. But, uh, uh, the local Ludus podcast was happening from the bathtub and the discussion topic was high fantasy. And uh, frankly, I just got to thinking about how frustrating it is to create any kind of hardline definition on certain terms. And high fantasy is one of those. High fantasy is not like, as a uh, Supreme Court justice once said, uh, pornography. You know, he said, I don't, I can't define it, but I know what it is when I see it. I don't think high fantasy is quite like that. I think high fantasy is something that people argue about quite a bit. And if you pull out any particular media property, uh, let's take Harry Potter, because somebody in one of the call-ins, I think it was Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety podcast, had called into local Ludus to say that he thought, uh, well, he, he said a number of things, but one of the things he said in passing was that Harry Potter, Harry Potter he thought, was high fantasy, just partially because the the ubiquity of magic in the setting. And I got to thinking about that, and I sort of disagreed. And I thought, well, Harry Potter to me is low fantasy because it's primarily mystery stories set in a boarding school. Um, and when I was first reading those, I was thinking, you know, really fantasy isn't the number one genre of Harry Potter. It's it's boarding school stories. It's about kids going off to school and their teachers and their classes and their friends um, and the kind of the bigger world of how adults are messing things up. Right. And how they how they fix that. And so there's there's, you know, kind of a mundanity or a groundedness to the Harry Potter fiction. But at the same time, I totally get it. There is this high fantasy side to it where. It's kind of over-the-top fantasy, you know, almost gonzo fantasy. Well, so you're not going to get a definition from me on high fantasy, but I think I can talk about some of the things that, some of the measures by which you can talk about 
a definition for high fantasy. I don't think you're ever going to arrive at one. I think that's an impossibility to, um, to, to arrive at a definition that is good for anybody more than your personal self or maybe a few friends. But some of the things that play into it, uh, one of them is scope. You know, how big is the canvas? Is it, does it span a continent? You know, is it epic in, in scope? Um, another one is stakes. What is at stake? Is it something personal and small or is it something massive and huge? Is it the fate of the world or um, what happened to your auntie who disappeared, right? Uh, romanticism versus realism is another factor. And I'm using capital R's on both of those. So I believe that th this is a big one, that high fantasy has a sort of romantic vibe to it. It uh, and that's sometimes kind of hard to, to explain, um, but it's not concerned with realism. It's concerned with an emotional impact. It's concerned with style and, um, wow. I don't know. I, you know, I, you'd think I'd be able to explain that a little better, but I, I think that's, I'm going to kind of leave it there. Whereas realism is concerned with, with, um, verisimilitude and, kind of staying gritty and true and where, whereas romanticism might deal with broad strokes, good and evil realism is going to deal in shades of gray. And I think that's a, that's a major distinction between high fantasy and low fantasy, but not the only one, right? I probably you can have romantic low fantasy. Um, I'm thinking of some of the works of Charles Dickens, for instance, as being romantic low fantasy. Well, and then, you know, magic is, of course, the one that everybody brings up, both in its potency and it's in, in its uh, ubiquity. So how easy is it to practice magic? Who has access to it? How many people practice magic? How big are the spells? Are they used in everyday life or are they only for special occasions? One of the interesting things about Tolkien, and I, I think we'd all agree that Tolkien is high fantasy, um, is that if you try to judge it on its magic, you'll fall a little short of high fantasy, I think, because magic in Tolkien is very mm, subtle, probably isn't the right word, but it's fairly rarefied. Only a few people practice magic. It's often enchantments attached to items. Uh, and if it's practiced in person, it, it's not like the emperor battling um, Luke Skywalker with lightning flashing everywhere or whatever. It's, it's usually much more subtle than that. Uh, Gandalf is the least subtle of all the wizards in Lord of the Rings. And a lot of times it's kind of this mind to mind wrestling, almost like psionics. So it's very hard to define that Lord of the Rings is high fantasy because of its magic. It is, however, high fantasy, I think, because of its scope. It's, it's epic on its canvas because of the stakes. The, the fate of the world is at stake. And because it's more romantic than realistic in a lot of ways, although Tolkien goes to great pains to draw in detail in the environments and to make it feel grounded, it's uh, certainly not a, a particularly realistic bit of fantasy. So that that uh, is just some of the litmus tests that you might apply to deciding whether something is high fantasy or not. The next thing I wanted to say, and this is just really a sort of a one sentence topic is everybody needs to go to their favorite internet browser and pull up the Google image search and type in Art Bob Peak. The Art of Bob Peak is amazing. If you've never seen this, I, there's so many great illustrators from the 60s and 70s that are kind of lost now. I'm thinking like uh, Sid Mead who, who recently died and who has a style similar to Bob Peak's. 
I'm not sure if Bob Peake is still alive, but you'll uh, most readily recognize Bob Peake from movie posters and specifically the movie poster for the musical Camelot and for the musical My Fair Lady. He did both of those. Um, there's high color, heavy brush strokes, um, slightly impressionistic, but very good on faces and character and style. They're very high style. The color is just amazing in these things. Um, he also did some more realistic works later. He kind of got into airbrush, I think. Um, he did the poster, the original poster for Rollerball with uh, the uh, guy with a spiked helmet and the upraised uh, gauntlet, you know, kind of shaking it in your face. There's, but go, you just have to go find the images. It's kind of hard to, I, I could probably do a better job describing if I was looking at them. In fact, I'm going to flip over. I got a tab here. Um, I said high color. They are typically very intricate. There's lots going on in each one of them. They're almost collaged. And sometimes they're literally collaged. Like he'll take bits of newspaper and work them in. Um, he did a lot of work for things, not only movie posters, but like the cover of TV Guide. Here's one where he did the, the faces from Fantasy Island with uh, Ricardo Montalban and then uh, the gentleman who played Tattoo. I can't think of his name off the top of my head. But uh, just, just some amazing illustrative work. And his sense of composition is really unparalleled. When you look at how these images are put together, uh, they are, they're incredible. There's one where he has two, uh, a man and a woman facing away from each other. And you sort of get, it's like a bust. You get like from their chest up and they're angry at each other uh, and where their hair, they both have dark hair. And in the area where their hair would touch with the backs of their heads touching, that becomes another space that's carved out. And you see two children in front of a magistrate in a court. And if, uh, clearly, you know, the whole story here is two parents who are splitting up and the kids are the ones who lose. Right. Um, and I don't know if this is from Kramer versus Kramer or something like that. I have no idea what this is from, but. Uh, it's a great, it's a great image. So I think he also did the poster for Fistful of Dollars. So if you, if you've seen that and that's heavy use of white space, right? Like where he leaves the negative space, um, to speak for itself. So great work. The art of Bob Peak. I said that was a one sentence topic, but of course I took it longer than one sentence. Um, what's next? Swashbuckling. So this comes back to the bathtub podcast and maybe I was Oh yeah, that's where we started here with high fantasy. Yeah, uh, the local Ludus Bob uh, uh, podcast. He is often um, uh, his name escapes me right now, but he's often talking about how saying the word swashbuckling brings a smile to your face, and of course it does. Uh, and different people talking uh, were talking about uh, that were calling in talking about what swashbuckling means to them, and I think there's some uh, swashbuckling. Unlike high fantasy, is actually fairly easy to define. It has a very specific meaning. It's kind of a, uh, has a period, a period, uh, periodicity. Is that a word? That's, you know, kind of a historical context to it. Uh, it has almost a, a literary context to it. Certainly we think of things like the three musketeers when we think of swashbuckling and pirates, you know, so Robert Louis Stevenson. And, uh, so I'm, I'm on the, on the uh, Wikipedia page for it. And there's actually some fairly intelligent things said on the Wikipedia page about it. Um, it says a swashbuckler is a heroic archetype in European adventure literature that is typified by the use of a sword, acrobatics, guile, and chivalric ideas. The, um, the actual term swashbuckler is a compound of swash and buckle, which refers to a drawn sword. 
uh, to swagger around with a drawn sword to swash with it. And then a buckler, which is a, a really small shield that's held, uh, you grip it in your fist or it's attached to your wrist, but I think you usually hold it with your fist and you, it's kind of the size of like a pie tin, right? And you, um, it's for catching blows, but it's just not a very effective shield. It's not, when you think of swashbuckling, you never think of somebody in full armor. Uh, in fact, they almost never wear any kind of armor. It's minimal, uh, it's, it's weaponry and, and stylish clothes. Uh, one of the other things they say here, and it kind of reinforces that point I just made, is while man-at-arms and swords of the era usually wore armor out of necessity, their counterparts in later romantic literature and film often did not, and the term evolved to denote a daring, devil-may-care demeanor rather than brandishment of accoutrement of war, and modern swashbuckling heroes might not carry swords at all. Um, and that's true. Certainly swords become lighter and lighter. They become uh, almost a a style, uh, a fashion statement, <laughs> you know, as, as you get into uh, very lightweight rapiers and things like that. So that uh, swashbuckling, but I think the point that, uh, that is made by local Ludus, and I'm going to look up his name right now as I talk. So if you hear me typing, that is what is going on because it's driving me nuts that I can't think of his name. I can find it here quickly <laughs> by local Ludus. That's not helpful. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm uh, sorry well you'll have to forgive me whoever you are that, that does Loco Ludus uh, a great little podcast by the way very thoughtful uh, I like his sort of deliberate delivery at first I was uh, almost I thought maybe oh this is gonna be a little slow I need to turn it up to you know 1.5 or 1.25 to listen to it but I don't listen to podcasts to cram information in my head necessarily. Um, sometimes I listen to them just to hear real people talking and not, uh, you know, not trying to sell me something or, um, you know, without an agenda of any kind. And so I kind of enjoy his deliberate and thoughtful approach to gaming. And he's done some great interviews lately, had Patrick Stewart on, he had um, the Chris uh, who did Electric Bastion Land. You can tell I'm really great with names. I'm very good with faces, but I'm terrible with names. It takes me a bit to get to get people nailed down. Well, uh, so that's swashbuckling. And then I wanted to talk a little bit about online gaming, which I think everybody's probably talking about now because of the state that we're in. You know, many of us have had to turn to online gaming. And my Monday night group has been off and on for quite a while now because of the Christmas break is, you know, really where it started. Um, and then I had a number of emergency travels for work. And so we've done some one shots and we've missed a lot. And this Monday we were all ready to game, but of course then, you know, the, the plague hit essentially. And, um, they closed the bars where we, we play at a brewery called Alesmith here in San Diego. And, uh, we knew that venue was going to be closed. And we weren't any keen at all to get together there anyway, just because of, you know, we wanted to do the responsible thing and not expose each other uh, because we travel in different circles. And it, it makes sense. I'm pouring coffee if you hear liquid splashing there uh, to not expose each other. So we, we went to online gaming and I was, you know, I've done it before. It's not anything brand new to me. I haven't used Roll20 extensively. That's what we use. So it took me a little bit to get up to speed on that again. But um, I, I have this kind of attitude about online gaming where if I can do face-to-face, -face, I definitely prefer face-to-face. -face. 
Well, we, we played online and it was really refreshing as a change. Honestly, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I mean, it's always nice to kind of be in the comfort of your own home with your own choice of beverage and, um, you can game in your pajamas or whatever, but, uh, it was also nice to have this kind of shared visual space, uh, almost like whiteboarding your game, right. To have a few maps and tokens and placement. And it depends on the GM too. I think some GMs are really good at immersive, like environmental uh, setting the environment in the tone with theater of the mind and others aren't. And Dan, uh, who's GMing now, that's not his strength. His strength lies in other areas. And so, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's really consistent. He's good with the rules. Um, he lets us explore quite a bit, um, you know, and, and do things, uh, he doesn't try to keep us on the rails per se. And so there's, he's got a lot of strengths, but I think, you know, one of his, um, it's not a weakness, but one, one of the areas that he concentrates less on is sort of describing the environment. So it was really nice to have these very quick, you know, sketchy maps up. We weren't using them as a grid or anything like that. Even though one of them had a grid, we kind of just didn't pay any attention at all to the squares on it <laughs> and just, you know, positioned our tokens. And that was helpful. Um, I enjoyed being able to set up macros for the die rolls. While I love rolling physical dice, it's kind of fun to just push a button and get the result because it does keep you in the fiction much more uh, in the sense that you're never sort of like engaging with components that are non-fictional components. And, and uh, Jason Hobbs of, uh, of multiple podcasts, Random Screed, Hex Talk, and uh, Hobbs and Friends, uh, uh, taught me a few cool macros to use in... Um, in roll 20 where you can sort of do inline rolling instead of seeing, you know, graphics of the dice and the whole bit, you can kind of make a sentence. Um, so we I played in a second game online. Um, just so I played Monday and then I played again, Tuesday, I played a game of labyrinth Lord with Paul, Paul, was it Paul Beakley? See, there I go with names again. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was a great little game. We, we did a little uh, exploration of a, basically a haunted tower, um, a spectral tower sitting on top of a, or in the same space as a, a physical stone tower, ruined tower. And uh, we didn't get very far. There was a total party kill. We pushed it a little too much. We could have, we had an encounter with Sturges that probably should have told us to go back to town and rest up. But um, we were, we were doing all right. And uh then got in way over our head. Uh, honestly, the turning point was uh, stabbing a mushroom that shot spores everywhere. Um, and that compromised a few people. And then we got attacked by a band of orcs and that was kind of the end. Well, we had a good time. Uh, we were playing Labyrinth Lord. We were playing in Roll20. Where was I going with all that? Oh, so so the Jason uh, Hobbs was in that game and he taught me these macros and you can set them up uh, where, and this is really interesting because it was a Thaco game, right? Lab Labyrinth Lord. So we'd set up these little formulas to make a sentence. So my character was Anaxagoras, um, which of course meant everybody was making fun of my name because nobody could pronounce it or they'd forget what it was. I was called uh, Anorexia and um, Anasagoras. Um, there was <laughs> there's a couple different ones, but uh, so I could make a, a statement like Anaxagoras um, swings his uh, swings his warhammer hitting AC you know, some calculated number for a damage of some calculated number. And uh, to get that calculation, uh, it, um, the Jason sort of handed me that formula. You know, it's the typical where you'd uh, 19 minus the 
the, uh, the role and all that kind of stuff, but it even had like little pauses in it to put in modifiers. So if you want to switch like if, uh, strength versus decks on your abilities, when you're, when you're hitting, depending on the weapon and all that kind of stuff, uh, it was very cool. It was very cool. And I enjoyed having, you know, setting those uh, common things up to just kind of fire off when they happened and keep the fiction moving quickly. So there are advantages to online play. It's something everybody should experience uh, at least once. Even if you just, I, I think the important thing to remember is that like, while a tool like Roll20 is very, very deep, you can do a lot with it. Paul was doing uh, Fog of War and the whole bit. So we'd have to position the torch and then it would show us what we, what we could see. And when we'd move on, we'd lose sight of the things we'd already, you know, been through even though we sort of could visualize in our head what they look like we couldn't actually see them and it was it reminded us that they were out of sight and that things could be uh, you know coming out of secret doors or whatever and coming up behind us in fact that is what happened at one point i'm not sure about the secret door thing but we had that band of orcs kind of came out of nowhere well you can do a lot with it but the, the learning curve is, um, I, I made the comment that Roll20 is one of those things where uh, a couple hours or an hour goes a long way in setting up a game, but to get to the next level, you have to spend another 10 hours. So the difference between two hours and 10 hours is is less than you would think, right? Like uh, that you can get a lot quickly, but then it takes a lot more to get, it's that kind of 80-20 rule. You know, 20% of your time covers 80% of what you need. And then the other, the remaining 80% of your time is going to get to getting get you another 20% of uh, bang for your buck at the table. But uh, so I, the whole point I was trying to make there was uh, that if you want to try online gaming, start simple. Just uh, turn on Skype or Zoom or, um, uh, you know, even just audio on Discord and roll your own dice at your tables and just play. You know, you can just play theater of the mind, um, use physical dice, trust everybody on their die rolls. I mean, if you're going to cheat at role-playing games, then, you know, that's really says more about you than the game. And <laughs> it's not, <laughs> you know, really. Uh, uh, so, you know, it can be, it can be really fun to play that way. Um, especially when you, when that's the only way you can play. Uh, and then, and then you can explore some of the more complicated stuff. If you're going to run a game for the first time online, I would totally encourage you to stay simple. One of the things that you have to remember, and I do a lot of presentations uh, through webinars, or I used to. And one of the things you have to remember is that as a GM, you might be talking into the void. So video helps in the sense that you can see people reacting to you and you can get those kind of nonverbal cues that you would get in a room. But if you don't have video, you, you, um, you can sometimes mistake like a pregnant pause in your audience for um, uh, the fact that you make, it makes you think you've laid an egg, right? That you've dropped a big turd or something, <laughs> you know, and that it's just nobody's um, picking up on what you're laying down. But the truth is they might just be processing it. And so when you speak into the void, you're not getting the immediate feedback. You're not getting the facial expressions. You're not getting little noises. Um, or if you are, they're out of context. And you can't tell what they mean. Uh, you're, you're, uh, and people are a little more hesitant to ask questions because they don't want to talk over each other. It's hard to take turns online with the mics. They get if two people talk at once, everything is kind of flattened out and it's kind of hard to, to hear. Um, whereas in real life in a, in a room, you know, your, your ear is better able to pick up nuances of different pitches and uh, um, orientation for, you know, where people are sitting at the table. 
that kind of comes through in, in an odd in the audible right in a real space but online it's all coming through the speakers in your headphones and it's all flattened out and so people talking at the same time are very hard to hear so in the in the effort for people to be polite and take turns they often will hesitate to speak um, so you have weird things, of course, like the pregnant pause followed by everybody speaking at once <laughs> because <laughs> and so it's almost like good to, to um, have somebody who's quick to speak and somebody who's hesitant to speak. And like so when the, per- the person who's quick to speak decides that uh, they're not going to talk, they pause and then the other person can jump in. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure what the, the chemistry is there, but it does kind of matter who's in the room. And a lot of it is about learning each other's uh, when each other's going to talk and how to take turns and maybe as the GM kind of directing things to ask questions specifically of players. You almost have to be a bit more of an, um, a maestro, an orchestrator, if you will, of the of the environment and of the play group to say, like, you know, what are you doing, Bob? What are you doing, Sarah? Um, as opposed to just saying, what do you do and leaving it open to the table because the, the difference is in the first example, you're giving people a speaking order uh, so they don't speak over each other. And the second one, you're just sort of throwing it open and letting anybody choose to speak first. And they might all speak at once or might ever, nobody might speak at first. And so there's just lots of things to think about. That's why you should keep it simple early on is because you, you've got other things. Uh, there's, a, there's a learning truism that, uh, that says that anytime you take on something new, you get really bad at the things that you already knew how to do. Um, So like in writing, let's say uh, you might be a a pretty competent writer, but then somebody tells you to write in second person, which we don't often do. And second person is this, you know, like uh, something like choose your own adventure text where you get uh, passages like you walk down the hallway. First, you notice this, then you see that, right? And it's all you, you, you. Well, if you don't write in second person, uh, it's an odd thing to do. And uh, when you try to write in second person, in in tackling the challenge of writing in second person, you may all of a sudden do, uh, you're taking your attention off of things that you had mastered before, like grammar, like um, storytelling and pacing and, you know, whatever is spelling, whatever else it is. And so those other things take a step back while you're learning the new thing. And I think that's going to be true if you're new into online gaming, that everything you already know how to do as a GM is going to suffer a little bit because a lot of your energy and focus is going to be on managing this digital environment that you've never been in before. So take it easy. Um, Don't be so hard on yourself, right? Um, Start simple. Start with simple tools. I'm not going to recommend any specific one. I've named a few. Uh, But uh, I I find that... um, that I, the biggest help I think is to to do that thing as the GM is to kind of be directed, like to um, kind of teach people how to take turns or to, or if people are, are having trouble taking turns, set some kind of order, whether it's initiative order or, you know, talking order or, or, um, you know, kind of maybe it might, might even be worth saying like, Hey, let's go from left to right around the table and define, you know, like sort of imagine, like imagine we're at a circle table. Um, Sarah, you're sitting to my left. Um, Fred, you're across the table from me and Bob, you're to my right. So we'll go clockwise in order. And, you know, when there's, when there's a doubt, um, you know, it goes, Sarah, um, Frank, Bob, Fred, whatever name I use there. Well, those are some ideas, maybe crazy. And lots of random thoughts, as I promised. 
Next up is some call-ins, um, some advice about supers. I've, I've been thinking some more about my supers game, um, come to a couple conclusions about how I want to play it. I think I want to do kind of a West Marches style thing because, you know, with the way things are going, we don't know who will be there and who won't be there. And I think that's particularly good for superheroes. So what that means is um, I'm going to play the game in a very, I'm, I'm probably West Marches. I'm, there's probably more to that term than I'm going to apply here. So let me, let me step back and use the word episodic. Um, what I want to do is make each session self-contained, but also part of a longer story arc. Uh, and uh, maybe that's a bad way to say it. Part of a, a, a bigger, like I want, I want long-term story and short-term story to develop, right? So that doesn't mean I have a story in mind for the long term. I've got, you know, villains and agenda and different things going on. But uh, what I'd like each session to feel self-contained so that heroes can drop in and out. And even so that uh, players, if they wanted to, could play different heroes for different situations or as they grow or, or lessen an interest. And then the uh, but have some themes that carry through and, you know, maybe the villains are more consistent than the than the heroes in that regard. Um so I'm going to concentrate on the short form and the long form, both right with, with the, with the game. Um, I've talked about putting pressure on some of those superhero contradictions in my previous podcast. And then I've got some great advice from call-ins and here they are. Hey Ray, this is JV West. Just listened to your supers episode. The point you made about masks and honesty uh, one thing I didn't hear you mention was, you know, the, the main reason given for wearing masks in most comics that I've ever read is to protect people who are in your personal life. You know, if everybody knows you're Spider-Man and you're Peter Parker, then Aunt May's a target. Thanks. Have a good one. Hey, Ray. Jim Crocker from JimLikesGames.com and the Just Played Anchor podcast. Just heard the superhero episode, and boy, have I got advice for you. Uh, tons of it. I've probably done more superhero gaming than I have all the other kinds of games put together. So if there's, I'm going to narrow it down to just one because I've only got a minute here, and that is have a discussion with the players and make sure that you understand clearly the different social contract that you have in a superhero narrative game than you do from a traditional fantasy adventure game. You're not going to have TPKs, you know, superheroes are hard to kill. That's just the way that that fiction works, but they are going to get defeated and uh, make sure that they're okay with that, that they embrace getting beat up, getting their asses handed to them so that they can then rise from that, learn from it and triumph afterwards. Cause that's how all those best superhero narratives work. Hey, Ray, Mike Shorten, Dungeon Master Sam book. Uh, dude, you have to do more interactive fiction reads. I probably made too much of a commotion on the train laughing my ass off at that, uh, at that last read from your Supers episode. Totally great stuff. I hope you uh, put up show notes with a link to that because I want to write some of that now myself. Um, I am going to secretly follow along with your supers adventure and uh, DMing because I too would like at some point to run a supers campaign. Mine would be set after World War II where the Axis had developed the supers first and the Allies did not. And so what the world would be like uh, based off of a three hex that I did on that same topic. Something I always wanted to do. So I'm going to be learning from your example. Cheers and game on. 
That's some great advice about superheroes. Thanks, James V. West. By the way, your name always sounds to me like you're um, taking on Western uh, civilization or the Western Hemisphere, James versus the West. Uh, and then uh, I, do, I do appreciate that thought about identities, of course. That's a, that's a big deal because of wearing the mask is is um, that you sort of have an inability to be your true self, right? Because of the danger that you might place on others. That's a good one. And Jim, a great idea about the social contract. I mean, I think we all feel like we understand those things, but not stating them out loud can be a huge mistake because if we don't all understand those things, then it can be very disappointing. And it's true. Um, I mentioned recently in a podcast I did with my buddy Angus on uh, Kirby's Kids. I don't think it's published yet, but it's about the, the graphic novel White Out. And I was talking about gumshoe fiction and how the the typical uh, gumshoe story or noir detective story is different from other detective stories and and how um, if you think about Sherlock Holmes for instance he's not not noir not gumshoe you know he's outwitting criminals it's it's about the genius about the crime genius whereas a gumshoe detective is not particularly a genius um, they usually are tough and persistent more than anything. And then, uh, you know, have good reflexes and are kind of with it, um, able to sort of read people and, and figure things out. But how, it, how a typical noir or gumshoe detective story goes is, uh, that they sort of bumble their way through problems. They just follow the money or follow the, the, the lies or whatever they, they, they chase down leads. And as they chase these things down, they get beat up. That's what happens. And, uh, if you've ever watched the Rockford files, for instance, one of my favorite old time shows, old time, <laughs> it is now <laughs> it's weird to me to think of it as old time, but you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's a show from the seventies and eighties, right. Um, the Rockford files and James Garner plays this detective and he just basically follows up on jobs that are given to him. Often the jobs turn out to be, um, somebody trying to either frame him or like, uh, have him do dirty work for them that, that he doesn't know, you know, that he doesn't catch on to initially, but, as he chases down the, the mystery, he uh, uh, there's always some point where he just gets the snot beat out of him, right? And it and it's kind of a running gag, uh, and that's that's the gumshoe detective. I mean, well, while Rockford Files puts kind of a funny spin on it, uh, the darker novels, you know, you, you were the hero has to take their licks. They have to, things have to get really bad before they get better, and I think that's true in superhero fiction a little bit, although in a very different, has a very different feel to it that superheroes have to take their licks because with, with great power, with the, with the ability to like do anything, like you think you, I'm a superhero. I can, I can, nothing can stop me. Um, you have to be shown that things can stop you, that you do have weaknesses, that uh, being invisible is is fine until somebody throws a sack of flour into the air, that um, having x-ray vision is cool until um, uh, somebody learns to encase their vault in lead or... or um, you know, put everything right out in the open. How do you, how does x-ray vision help you, uh, in, uh, in a political situation, right? So you have to, you have to learn the limits of your power and the way to learn the limits of your power is to get beat up <laughs> to, to, and learn how to like, you know, shore up, uh, your weaknesses with other things, um, other than just using your power for everything. And so that's a great, that's a great point about the social contract. Finally, um, thank you for the thoughts on, uh, the interactive laughs. I do love that AI dungeon. And I love to think about 
people, you know, listening to my podcast and having visceral responses in front of others that, that, uh, <laughs> that serve as entertainment for, um, an un- unintended audience on the bus or the train or wherever. So that's very cool. I will definitely link, uh, the AI dungeon, both in episode 124 and 125. I'm working on the show notes right now and they should be done shortly. So by the time you hear this podcast, you, the notes will probably be up. Um, I'm just not very good at, at getting those notes up right away, but I do try to be relatively thorough once, once I do put them out there. And I like to put them in the blog because you can't search the notes inside of podcast episodes. Um, you know, so if you go over to the blog and you want to find out when I talked about Troika or Lasers and Feelings or some of my own games like Sorcerers and Swords, you can, you know, put that into the search bar and it'll show you all the episodes where I've talked about those things. By the way, that last caller was Michael Chegowiz, C-H-G-O-W-I-Z, and I think that's short for Chicago Wizard. He does a podcast called The Dungeon Master's Handbook, which is about AD&D, as you might expect, Advanced Dungeons and & Dragons. And he gets into some of the, the nitty-gritty of that system and how to game master it, things like um, uh, initiative or uh, the actual rules around researching spells or scribing scrolls and things like that that come up a lot when you're uh, when you're DMing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons because it's it's um, not a consistent system and it's a fairly deep system I would say complex but you know most of the rules are sort of optional uh, or sort of written that way. Uh, but it is complex nonetheless, and uh, there's a lot of nuances to it, and it's kind of cool to listen to him navigate those waters. Uh, before that, we had Jim Crocker, who self-identified and also mentioned his website, Jim Likes Games. Jim does really great uh, actual play, uh, not actual play, um, what am I trying to say? Like summaries of his actual plays. So when he reviews a thing, it comes from, uh, has a lot of credibility. It comes from a viewpoint of somebody having played it. And he talks about those games quite a bit. Uh, James V. West, before that, James does the Black Pudding zine um, and does illustrations for a lot of different um, games that you'll see out there. He's got a Von Bodie kind of style, a little bit like uh, the the cartoon Wizards, you know, Mabakshi's Wizards. And it's, it's he's really good and, and creative and interesting. He does really neat stuff. Um, and then let's see. Uh, oh, oh, so I did go back and look up a couple things. Uh, it was Paul Wolf who ran the game for us the other day. Paul Wolf and uh, the host of the Loco Ludus podcast is Barney. I don't know how I forgot that because whenever he says his name, or well, the first couple of times I listened to him when he said his names, I thought his name. I thought he was saying Varney with a V, like Varney the Vampire, um, but it's Barney. So. Great name, Barney. You don't hear that name very much anymore, at least not in the States. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great name. Okay, well, what else is there to say? I do think I want to talk a little bit more about um, solo plays, so I'll do that in a future podcast, and I appreciate the, the sort of push to do that, Michael, because I have this running character that I've been... Um, I have a little pocket mod of the uh, takeoff on the Mythic GM emulator because I don't like some of the things in that book. I, I think I've gone on record before saying that I object to the art in that book, um, but aside from that, I think it's overly complex. Um, but it is it is a neat system. It's got some neat ideas. So I made up my own little D6 based version of it called GMER. Um, and I think that stands for, if I had to go back and look, but I think it's the game <laughs> GM uh, emulator ripoff or something like that. 
<laughs> so I don't like to put it out there because it's it's really uh, you know it's really trading on somebody else's work, uh, even though it's quite different in, in its own way. Um, I made up a little pocket mod version of that, and I carry it with me in the back of one of those small mead uh, moleskin notebooks. And uh, I've got a running character that I've been using with that system. And if you don't know that system, basically you, uh, in a nutshell, you ask yes or no questions, and then uh, you do one quick bit of triage in your mind to decide, well, how likely is that thing to happen? And then the system has a little bit of input in terms of what the current level of chaos is. So I, I like to think of that as how amped up the situation is. So in a fairly quiet thing, like when when you're sort of in the beginning of, of an adventure, things are still relatively mundane, that chaos factor is low. And But when you're after a bunch of stuff has happened and you're in the kind of thick of it and you're in trouble or whatever, that chaos factor would be high. So you decide, okay, it's, it's uh, more likely or less likely or very unlikely. And then you apply that chaos factor, you roll some dice and you get an answer to your yes or no and uh some, it's the answer is like uh your yes or no question the answer is yes or no but it, sometimes it's like yes with a twist or with emphasis or no with a twist or emphasis and so i've been playing this character uh farley Bogbottom. he's a halfling cow whisperer uh which means he's a veterinarian who travels around the shire um who travels around the shire dealing with sick cows and pigs and, and chickens and whatnot but uh, as he's been doing that lately, he's been running into some dark things, some trouble from the swamp. Uh, and uh, I'll, um, I, I think I put a little, well, I know I wrote up the first adventure, but I put it in my own little uh, version of the, of the pocket mod, which again, I, I think I'll probably, I'll tell you what, just for you all, I'm going to put that pocket mod out there in my show notes but uh, it's for your own use. It's not for publication or trade or whatever. Uh, and uh, this is just for you all. So try to, you know, if you want to use it and have some fun with it, great. But uh, don't, don't, don't be spreading it around the internet, please, because I don't feel right about that. I think my ultimate goal with it is to kind of completely file off the, the GM Mythic Emulator serial numbers unless they put out a version of that book with less objectionable art. And, um, and by the way, I haven't broached that subject. I feel like I need to say it. Uh, it's not that the art is terrible. It's it's um, up and down in terms of quality. But uh, what I object to is that it's, in my opinion, very sexist art, over-sexualized females, um, pretty much all females. Uh, one of the things I one of the things I look for when I try to decide if a product is skewed that way is what I call babes and monsters, um, where all if all the men are are wearing masks or monstrous in some ways and, and kind of giant hulking figures, and all the women are over sexualized. That's that's the kind of babes and monsters thing, and you see that a lot, a lot, way too much in fantasy fiction. Um, I suppose the the genesis of it is this kind of like, we can all picture that Conan painting by Frazetta where he's standing on the hill of skulls with the girl hanging onto his leg. I wouldn't go as far to say as that's a babes and monsters, but, but you, if you take that one step further, um, you even see hero duets like cloak and dagger, for instance, uh, where the male figure is mysterious and not all, not at all about his physical form, like his, his, uh, covered up and, uh, and in a way that's, I don't know, what am I trying to say? That, uh, that you're not supposed to judge him based on his, like, looks, right? But but the female figure is, like, hot, H-A-W-T, hot, right? Like, like over-sexualized in a way that's just, uh, 
that's that's just kind of crazy. So um, I don't like that. Uh, any rate, um, so unless they put out a better version of that, I'm I'm probably not going to um, be pointing to that. If they do, I would love to point to it because I think there's some good work there. Well, uh, I will put that little pocket mod up in my show notes that you can download and have a go at, and maybe I will do a bit of a podcast on Farley Bogbottom and give you some of the um, the inside scoop on what he's been running into. I think that does it for this time. It's been a long podcast, surprisingly. Um, a long podcast about nothing is kind of Seinfeldian. Thank you all for listening. I'm Ray Otis. You can find my stuff at www.rayotis.com. That's R-A-Y-O-T-U-S. And thank you to Logan Howard, who did my amazing theme song. Until next time, look out for those rust monsters. <laughs>